0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Welcome back to the show, friends. Today we have returning to the show, Dr. Joshua Graves. Good to be with you, Luke. Thanks for coming back on your fourth or fifth or seventh time, however many times it's been.
1: Well, you know, some of us have been listening from the very beginning, and it's pretty obvious that you've hit the big time now. Do you know what I'm I'm talking about? Why would you
0: say that? You're bona fide. Is that because you've been on so many times?
1: Oh, no, no, we're practically family. This is like you having your dad on. Like this doesn't really count. No, what I'm
0: saying is you're sponsored now. I, I, you know that is true. Speaking of sponsors, <laughs> I thought you were going to do like stamps.com, like Bill Simmons. No, last... we got we've got a better sponsor this month. Okay, well, who the, you got? The Work of the People video series. Have you used oh, those before?
1: I have. Brugman does those. Yes, yeah. love hey, them. They're good.
0: They've got Brugeman, Barbara Brown Taylor, Brian Zahn, Brian McLaren. Uh, actually, this is the uh, the first introduction I had to Brene Brown was through the Work of the People video. Oh, have you used them in a in a sermon before or in a worship service? Because I have, and I've had really good experience. Yes,
1: yes, we have. Uh, especially, we have a contemplative service on Wednesday nights that we've used probably more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's great. It's also great, like in for life groups. Yeah like home groups just to generate conversation now that Rob Bell's not making Numa videos? I mean, what are we going to do now?
0: I don't know. Your buddy, uh, Ian Cron, he's done uh, done some work with him as well. his worship stuff
1: on there is fantastic. Yeah, yeah big, that's right.
0: Big fan. And they actually even had uh, Tom Wright on. So the list of people they've had on, it's outstanding. A lot of these people have been on the podcast, and so people who listen to the show, they should know The Work of the People. If they don't, go check it out, com. It's really good stuff. Josh Graves even endorses it. <laughs> so what I else? There are
1: definitely some heretics on that list you just named but what that's, that's another
0: subject the people i just mentioned farewell. are you calling barbara brown taylor heretic
1: <laughs> no, I'm not. no i'm just trying to get your ratings up if you use heretic or
0: farewell I, you know. Know. I really need to get someone to criticize the podcast um and tell me how bad it is i mean i've gotten some of those emails but they just don't do any good when it's just an email not like a tweet right Something yeah. vitriolic on social media would be <clears> great.
1: If you could get Rick Ashley to do it, that would. In the Church of Christ world, that would.
0: I to yeah, I know he's been too nice though about the podcast. Um, yeah, I that's did, not what
1: he said to me, but <laughs> he was good. He,
0: I don't know if I should say this or not. He, we were at dinner one time, and he says, "You know, Luke, I've, I've listened to some of the podcasts, and I I like them, but sometimes I just want to reach across the table and smack you in the face." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, so your relationship has not changed at all. No, it's just like I—it's just like I'm working for him again. So I
0: don't—I uh, don't see the difference. Yeah. So okay, so uh, your book just came out. Um, we're excited about that. This is a project you've been working on for a while, and um, the title: "How Not to Kill a Muslim."
1: Yeah, subtitle is a manifesto of hope for Christianity and Islam in North America. Um, so yeah, it's—I yeah. uh, feel like. F- the uh, length of time I've been working on the book is not indicative of how good the book is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Josh, I don't know if you know how this is supposed to work, but you're supposed to tell people how great the hey, book is. So this to get committed it
1: committed to full transparency. In my, life.
0: <laughs> you so know,
1: I think you, I think it's quality. But I'm saying if, if someone's been working on something for five years, it should be like you know, Bill Simmons' The Big Book on Basketball, or like
0: I'm, I'm glad it wasn't that long because. I, that would have been a long book to read through. Yeah, time.
1: yeah. So this has been inside of me for five years now, but we worked really hard to keep it to like 120 pages because we wanted it to be accessible to everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah. When uh, when I was talking to uh, to the Bells about their book, The Zim, Zim of Love, they said there's something tactile about a book that you, pick, you can pick it up and you can feel like, oh, this isn't. Too weighty. I can finish this. I can, I can do this. And this book's very accessible for the average church person who's trying to say, I don't really know how to engage with my Muslim neighbor. And this is a great place to start. Yeah. I, so
1: let me let me ask you a question. Are we done with the intro stuff? Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about the title? Because you interview a lot of authors, and I've
0: had, a, I've had very, very uh, diverse response to the title of the book. How Not to Kill hmm. – Well, first of all, if you've listened to the show, you know I'm terrible with titles.
1: I know that the fact that I I actually got got to here right now, so I can remind you if you forget it. I can just keep saying it over and over again.
0: (laughs) Exactly. It's very shocking. Like it, it, it it points at something that I think we all know is kind of under the surface: is that there's a tension, uh, you know, American Christian Protestant evangelicals and the Islam community. Is that uh, like there is like obviously violence is between us and so saying like how not to kill him, yeah it's it's shocking it gets your attention what were you trying to communicate with it
1: well it, it was actually the publisher's idea I yeah. had a I had some kind of tame Reagan esque like tear, tear down, down these walls down. or mm-hmm. you know um, <clears throat> but they they insisted that it was important enough that it really needed to convey kind of this central idea that Jesus says, you know, okay, it's one thing if you don't kill somebody, but what about your heart? So you start at the end, which is, man, the goal is let's, let's stop killing each other Mm -hmm. because obviously there's been a lot of death on both sides the last 50 years. Um, So if that's the end game, uh, let's name the end game. And then the book is like, how do we get to that point? Like, how do we take the journey to, Kind of true peace and reconciliation. Um, but, so it's, it was interesting. I I, I pulled three different friend groups. I can't remember if I emailed you early on when the publisher said that they wanted to do this. My friends who are, I would kind of describe as more conservative evangelical hated it.
0: Why did they hate it? I don't know.
1: I'm just I'm just giving the facts. I what didn't really mean? interpret. Um, cause you're doing it in real time, you know, cause publishers got to put stuff in catalogs about what's coming out in the spring and oh, yeah. it, it's crazy. Like your window sometimes on the title is pretty short. Um, my friends who would consider themselves, I would say kind of open progressive, that was pretty mixed, but I would say two thirds of them did not like the title. The only consistent group that liked it were my friends who were Muslim and Baha'i. See? They liked it. Really? They like the title.
0: They like the idea of not having Americans kill them. Probably that's a pretty good place to it's be. It's in their. My title is
1: in their vested interest. Okay, and, uh,
0: hold on, hold on. I'm saying that sarcastically. I mean, obviously,
1: I, I, I don't well, really mean that. But discrimination, th- hatred, suspicion. It's all on that continuum of murder, right? That's why yeah. Jesus is so brilliant. It's your heart, so. They knew, probably because they know me, I was polling Muslims that I know. I wasn't just polling random Muslims. Yeah,
0: so Are you saying that, that that's <clears throat> that's got to be at the forefront of their day-to-day experience, is thinking about not being persecuted in varying degrees of yes violence? Yes. Really? Well, in violence in the very broad sense of exactly, yeah.
1: speech, discrimination, stereotype, all the way to physical threat, you know. But yeah, I th- I think uh, especially for Muslims in America who look like, quote, Muslims, yeah. you, you know what I'm saying? Like, because you and me are good wasp, like white American guys, right?
0: Except for your Malcolm X glasses you're wearing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll get back to that later. <laughs> so I thought we were going to do that joke later in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it was worth it you cashed that chip in really quick
0: so anyways what were we talking about the experience of being a stereotypical uh, having a stereotypical appearance
1: especially if you look like oh I'm a Muslim male living in America I'm a Muslim woman who may wear like the hijab or something like you're very aware that you're a minority ethnically and religiously so that that is a definite Uh, Scott McKnight on your podcast referred to The Invisible Man, which is one of my favorite books. Um, and that's a great metaphor, uh, except in the opposite. Like, whereas blacks in America have felt invisible for so long, Mm -hmm. Muslims can't hide in American culture. Like, if you look Middle Eastern, if you look Arabic, you might be Christian. Like, you might be Chaldean. But if you just look like you're middle Eastern, you are always in American culture, especially in 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 kind of a public setting that's you're right. always you're aware of like yeah that's i
0: mean 9-11 fundamentally changed that okay, let's talk about that nine eleven pre nine eleven even in your book, you talk about you know you you go to a funeral uh the day after the day of nine eleven 11 the day of as it was
1: happening, yeah oh, that's
0: crazy, which everyone can remember exactly where they were when the right. towers came down. Right. I'm assuming our neighbor, our Muslim neighbors can drastically remember where they were because before and after their experience day to day had right. to have drastically changed. Is that? It did. Yeah. yeah. I, m- my friends
1: who have been willing to talk about that, they describe it as, you know, we went from being people of suspicion to now we were on, um, you know, DEFCON 1 or 5, or the orange terror, like, you know, it just got ramped up at such a level. I mean, you know this, but in in Arizona, Sikhs were killed because people in Arizona thought that Sikhs were Muslim. So if, there's this whole package stereotype of, we don't, in, in a sense, it's not even whether we know you're Muslim or care if you're Muslim, if you just look Middle Eastern. They were suspicious of you. Right. And the irony is 70%, of all Arabic uh, 70% of all Muslims in the world are not Arabic speaking and do not live in the Middle East but because of 9/11 and because of Iraq one and Iraq war two and after war in Afghanistan m- the majority of Americans have kind of put into this one category the Middle East and Islam
0: yeah and, and that- I understand I understand why
1: but it's just not true
0: okay it's not true but well, first of all, like how did this even get on your radar? W- were you thinking of this before nine eleven, or did this come front and center back then?
1: Uh, that's a good question. <clears throat> I think the seeds of the conversation were in me because of uh, just being raised in Metro Detroit. You're very aware of the tension between black and white. Mm-hmm. And at a lesser level, when I was in middle school and high school, you started to hear uh, conversations about Christians and Muslims in Dearborn. So they're Middle Eastern Christians, Middle Eastern Muslims. Detroit has the largest Arab population in the world outside of the Middle East. Detroit and does. Detroit does. Why? The sole reason of that is Henry Ford was willing to pay black, white, Hispanic, Muslim the same amount for the same work. Uh, after during World War One, World War II, and then when the car industry exploded, uh, he would—he just wanted people who could work. So when the so immigration- Henry
0: Ford, his willingness to hire anyone is why Detroit yeah. has the diversity.
1: That's one of the main reasons. Wow. Uh,
0: I guess that makes it's, sense.
1: It's ironic because he was anti-Semitic. But anyway, so that created this uh, reputation in the Middle East world when immigration policies started to change in the 50s and 60s. Um that allowed many more people from non-European countries to come into the United States. And Islam is the second largest religion in the world, you know, a billion four. So when you open up your doors via immigration to all of these non-European countries, just by percentages – your Muslim population is going to increase. So I was aware in middle school and high school growing up, I mean, I, pl- I had teammates, friends in high school who were uh, Chaldean Christian or uh, Arabic Muslim. And, and so I was aware of the tension. I wasn't aware of like what it was like to be in Dearborn because I was on the other side of Detroit. I was on the east side, that's the southwest side. Um, so the seeds were in that, but I think nine eleven is what really made me pay attention. You know, I'm 22 years old, 23 years old. As many people have noted, for people in their 30s and 40s, it is like the Pearl Harbor major public sociological experience of our kind of our worldview. Um, and the same and how- thing
0: happened after uh, December 7, 1941, where after that, people uh, who resembled someone from Japan. All of a sudden were persecuted in America, oh, we put them in and camps. detained yeah, 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 on our own soil it's
1: yeah it's truly remarkable, um, and like you, not too long after nine eleven I went to divinity school, mm-hmm. and uh, interfaith conversation was all the rave like how 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 do we interact with Muslims and jews and because all of a sudden after nine eleven a lot of Protestants were like, Jews, not so bad. Like, why are we, you know, like, why are we at have animosity toward? It? And And it was like a resurgence of this kind of uh, loyalty to Israel and, and the Jewish nation and all that. So to go right to seminary after that, when you're thinking a lot, no longer about like Church of Christ, Methodist, Baptist, but now you're thinking about the world and all these different religions. I think it was just the, kind of the intersection of all those things in my life.
0: So you've been talking about this five-plus years. At least you've been working on this uh, this project. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it longer than five years?
1: Uh, no, I'd say about five years. By the way, I have to tell one very quick story I just forgot. One of my teammates, when I played, uh, I played for a small college in Detroit called Rochester College, one of my teammates, one of the best players on our team was Chaldean. His name is Gennaro Daywood. He plays professionally in the Middle East right now. Great scorer, great shooter. Mm-hmm. But we were playing a school uh, in a really intense game, inner city Detroit, and part of the student section started chanting terrorist every time he got the ball. Oh my. And I only received one technical foul my entire time at Rochester College. Was it for that? uh it was because of language that i used towards that student section and towards some of the guys on the other team uh i just could not believe so just, this sort of, just for the sake this, of conversation what kind
0: at, of what kind of words were we talking about? i mean what was the response here well, the uh, well, look, the non nadias there's a
1: 10% chance that my wife's going to listen to this and a 5%. 10%, chance. that's it? <laughs> yeah. Same as if your wife's going to listen. It's, it's lower than 10% with my wife. It's <laughs> I would just say that I used words that uh, you shouldn't use unless in extreme emergency situations, <laughs> <So> <laughs> which you, I felt was warranted. You towards. broke the
0: glass and pulled out the uh, the hate extinguisher in right. that moment and you needed to
1: so And this was six months after 9-11, maybe four months after 9-11. Oh, wow. And, and they were making these insinuations that this guy on our team was a terrorist and how, how could you play with him? And, all. and I just do you, went. Do you I think, went.
0: Okay, and I think a lot of us would look back and say, it, it's kind of justifiable why you would go nuts. I'm trying to think of the mindset of those, you know, you got these 20-year-old kids, college students, who are just chanting something to be stupid. I mean, when I was in high school, there was a kid from our rival school uh, who was a good soccer player. He drowned, and like mm-hmm. three months later, nah, no, maybe – Six or eight weeks later, at a basketball game, one of just some idiot kid wore floaties to the game. Oh my goodness! It just just stupid's, and he g- got beat up afterwards. But I mean, <laughs> it sounds like you were a part of it. No, no, I wasn't part of it. I it was a basketball game. I was a wrestler. I had a wrestling match early the next morning, so I was, wasn't even at the game. Oh my! But like this is a guy who's just completely an idiot. He doesn't think through what he's saying when he's yeah. or what he's doing when he wears that makes a terrible joke when those kids those college kids are are chanting that do you think it's we're just ignorant and we don't really understand people who have a different shade of skin than us or is it deep seated like animosity towards them which would you guess that I, is
1: i think it's both and i think it's mob mentality you know when you're in a sports venue and it's a small gym there's a lot of people there and it's tense again my friend janeiro looked muslim like yeah. if you just put him in a lineup and asked seven white guys, what do you think about this guy? They're like, Oh, he's probably a Muslim and he probably owns a gas station. Like that's the stereotype in Detroit, because most of the gas stations in Detroit are owned by Muslims. Mm-hmm. So I think it would just was that frenzy that fed into it. So I just hadn't prepared emotionally for one of my friends to be the you know, the recipient of that kind of brunt.
0: I- I don't think anyone could prepare themselves she, for that, yeah. to be honest. And this kid was like as Christian as anybody. Like generic, he's a
1: Chaldean. Like his parents were devout. He wore crosses everywhere. He was like big into fasting and like. And I don't. I mean, I'm not trying to say he was like this super spiritual person, but he was as Christian as I was. Like
0: <laughs> that's not saying much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but Rel- he's a- relatively speaking for college students. He was. Do- he was doing good though. Try- Trying to be Jesus people, yeah.
0: Do you think that was part – if you don't know your teammate, if you don't have this guy as a buddy of yours, do you think your interest in the subject would have been as uh, as great as it is now?
1: Yeah, I do. I, I just think that was one of my moments where I realized what was already inside me because I think it would have came out in other ways too.
0: No. Uh, what, tell me again this guy's name.
1: His name is Gennaro Daywood. Gennaro D-A-
0: yeah. I just had to, one other question about Gennaro. Did <laughs> did, did he, he teach you to keep score and stats of pickup basketball games, or did you already do that before you got to know I, Gennaro?
1: I've, I've been keeping stats of pickup games since I was probably eight.
0: Okay. All right. Just I I didn't know if that was something that he yeah. helped teach you. In
1: fact, if you want to know, Luke, <clears throat> the pickup league that I started at Otter Creek has been in full force now.
0: He's pulling out and, a spreadsheet
1: right now. <clears throat> If you want to know in two thousand and fifteen, let me see. I am seventy three and thirty three right now in two thousand
0: fifteen. I think um, you probably need to join me on my next trip to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and talk to our friend. I listen to that
1: podcast. Stop counting. I listen to it. I would.
0: I would hope that maybe that might help you work through some of that. But um, anyway, let's get back. Let's get back to the subject here. Okay. Okay, you have four assumptions about how americans view muslims and i think they're pretty spot on first sure. is that they're they have a hard heart because there's no personal connection
1: yeah proximity
0: yeah they just don't they don't know anyone um no. second too busy to care so even if they do have a neighbor who's of uh muslim faith an islam uh, a muslim mm-hmm. someone mm-hmm. of the islam faith uh, they just, uh, they're too busy with other stuff going on. They don't, uh, they don't have time to, to think about it. Uh, the third is you have this character, which, uh, often is propagated, uh, by the, uh, 24 news cycles or the, uh, the images you see on TV and media, or the, uh, the fourth one is they're just underprepared. I would assume the majority of people that I've interacted with fit in number one, no personal connection don't really have this subject on the forefront of their mind because they don't know any Muslims.
1: Yeah. Right. So that gets back to kind of the missional impulse of the church. The fact that it never dawns on Christians, that it could be our responsibility to engage our neighbors is, it really speaks to the kind of theological bankruptcy we have that we would never even, it would never even occur to us. Oh, Maybe, you know, maybe I should go to the mosque and ask the imam, hey, how can our church help? Like, so, yeah, no, I I agree with you. And, and, you know, I think the biggest reason I wrote this book is the first two books that I've written, The Feast and Heaven on Earth, were just kind of like, okay, what's the kingdom of God to me and all the people that I read, Right. But I think that we need very particular expressions of our faith. and I think one of the biggest reasons why so many people are in churches and have this voice that say that says, is there, "There's got to be more than this?" Like I can't just evaluate Christianity on whether I like the sermon or not. right? Like I think one of the things that we really are lacking is we don't have very particular focused expressions of our faith. And for me, it's it's why some people come alive when they work with the homeless or they work with someone who's been in trauma. Like for me, this has been one of the very particular ways I can demonstrate I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. And so I'm I'm going to do something about it.
0: And that is by loving your neighbor.
1: By loving your neighbor and asking yourself like Jesus did, who's who's my neighbor? And the answer in the in Jesus Jesus' teaching is there's no one who's not your neighbor. Yeah.
0: Hmm. And so uh, there's a gentleman, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, a guy named uh, Miroslav Volf. He's, yes. a, he's a theologian. You might have read his work once or twice. Yeah. His stance is that, uh, and this is a quote, whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God is also the driving question for the relationship between these two religions globally. And so if I could kind of abbreviate the rest of his work uh, or this this paragraph, his point is – if Allah and Yahweh is the same, then how the whole world functions is completely different. And his argument seems to be like, let's push that direction. Whereas I don't feel like your work is pushing that way. Your work seems to be pushing more towards, it doesn't matter if we're the same or we're different. It's our call by Jesus to love our neighbors. Is that a fair right. statement? Is that a fair yeah, statement? I think that's right.
1: And part of it is, I, I assume you're re- referring to his book called Allah, which is a really fantastic book, but he seems to think that at least in that book, that theology is kind of the answer. And I don't, I think theology is important. I think practice is the answer.
0: Okay. So why, why do you think theology isn't, the answer? Well, be, I
1: mean, because if it was, we'd have this figured out by now. We've been doing theology for 2,000 years. <laughs> like,
0: oh, we, yeah.
1: That's what we do. Like, we write books and we speculate and we go on podcasts
0: and... Don't you dare disrespect the podcast venue.
1: <laughs> and we wear, we wear cut-off tank-top t-shirts when we record said podcasts. I
0: don't. That's weird. But, it's a weird thing uh, to say.
1: Back to Volf. Back to Volf. So, Volf makes the claim that Yahweh and Allah are the same. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, he takes a long, thoughtful way to get there. And I agree with him in the sense of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are Abrahamic, right? Judaism and Christianity are from Isaac. Islam is from Ishmael. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. They're the three Abrahamic faiths. And Judaism and Christianity have not read the Ishmael story very carefully, Ishmael is blessed. He's part of the divine purposes of God. You know, he's, he's all the weird translations we've done with. He's a wild ass of a man. Like anybody can go and read a lot more about that stuff. I agree with that. But as a Jesus person, this is my Anabaptist voice coming up. I believe that the perfect image of God is Jesus, right? So if it can't be said of Jesus, it can't be said of God. Christianity is Jesus. That's where I would kind of part ways with Volf a little bit to say, I agree that we're of Abrahamic faith and that we come from this one creator. But my fundamental definition of reality in which the divine and the human meets is in the person of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, I think there's a parting of the ways with Christianity and Islam. Now that's all theological speculation, right? Mm-hmm. My point is not to figure that out. My point is there is a mandate of anyone who takes Jesus seriously to engage Muslims the same way that Jesus challenged Jews to view Samaritans is the same challenge. I think Jesus would offer Christians and Muslims today. Can you see a Muslim as capable of embodying the kingdom of God? That's what the the good Samaritan is all about, which obviously I go into some detail in the book.
0: Yes, yes, you do. And you uh, you use some of the work of our friend uh, A.J. Levine. Yeah, just yeah. some good stuff there. Now, you make the claim oh, that um, – which is basically what you just said, that the the Samaritan to the Jew is the same as the Muslim to the Christian. And so yes. w- mm. that relationship to us is the closest thing that we can experience that's like the first century Jew to Samaritan. And so you you're pushing back because some of us are thinking – wait a minute, how could they ever help us out? And at that moment, we finally get the Good Samaritan story. Yeah. When we wonder, that group, they're going to be the ones to help us out? I don't know yeah. if this was just an internet story or internet meme that got uh, uh, exaggerated, but the story about um, maybe it was like Coptic Christians who were praying, and there's a group of Muslims who gathered around a while ago yeah. and protected them. That's like Good Samaritan story. Right.
1: Well, even in even in Paris, right, when – one of the places that was under siege, it was a Muslim who was protecting um, some of these people. There could have been more deaths in Paris in the recent terrorist attacks, but it was a Muslim protecting Parisians from this kind of radical group. There, really? there could have been more deaths. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we we do see stories like that, um, and I think what's surprising about the way Jesus takes on this tension. Um, is that we think that things are worse today than they've ever been. And I fundamentally reject that belief.
0: Why why do you reject that?
1: Because I think the world's always been complicated. I think there's always been violence. I think there's always been terrorism. I mean, Saul of Tarsus was the original terrorist towards the church in Acts. Acts goes out of its way to make sure you know it's Saul who is the organizing principal character in the persecution incarceration and death of christian so i just there was a lot of violence at the time of jesus a lot of insurrection a lot of terrorism within israel a lot of animosity between samaritans and jews like i just don't think i don't think the world's better than it's ever been or worse than it's ever been i think it is what it is
0: and it's always been this way
1: and it's always been this way and i think we take steps forward in some areas and steps back it steps back in other areas. And my point is to say there is this unique opportunity right now for Christians in America to treat Muslims in America the way we want our Christian brothers and sisters in Egypt to be treated, right? So you have 10% of Egypt's population is Christian, 90% Muslim. So we better be treating our Muslim neighbors the way we want our Christian brothers and sisters in Egypt to be treated. It's reciprocity. I mean, it's just right. Golden rule. It it makes perfect sense that you do. And and, and I should say by and large, Muslims in America have it better than Christians in some Muslim parts of the world have had it right now. Mm -hmm. But that hasn't always been the case in the history of Islam and Christianity. I mean, it's a pretty sordid history.
0: Do you think part of the reason that, uh, Muslims in America would be treated better than say Christians in, in some parts of the world is because uh, America has moved past Islamophobia or do you still think there's strong pockets of that in which the majority of people just see Muslim and terrorist as a synonym?
1: Uh, I think it's because America has this unique thing called separation of church and state that for the most part has worked and is actually brilliant. Now some people think that Jefferson that It was the separation of Christianity and the state. And so they're arguing that these other religions don't apply. But Jefferson meant the the separation of religion and state, any kind of religious entity. So I think the fact that we have that and that we have this diverse immigration population uh, who always bring their values and their religions, I think there's just much more of a sense of a uniqueness that so this is part of what America is supposed to be. And we have people who resist that. But that, that narrative is going to win out because it's in the DNA of America. We are the most diverse country in the history of the world, and it's not even close.
0: Yeah. So the the issue that we've got to wrestle with is what does it mean to be good neighbors in a pluralistic society? Like, yes. how, how do we do that? And you say in the book, I'm a Jesus person, which I love – how you did that. I I think you, Mm -hmm. you communicated up front and early and we get where you're coming. You're a Jesus person. And I'm not putting words in your mouth to say this, but I think you would say, I'm a Jesus person. I want everyone to be a Jesus person.
1: Absolutely.
0: But regardless of that, you don't have to take the route of, um, our more bearded friends from Louisiana who one might say either convert them or kill them. Yeah. You you can do that in a way and say, "I, I still love you. You can still be treated well. You can know that you and I are cool. We're, you're going to be safe next to me. Uh, and part of how you couch your argument is that you believe the image of God is found in everyone. Yeah. And so that's kind of the root of how you treat people as good neighbors is because you believe in them. They all have the same divine spark, that desi- the same divine image that you have. Right. And so I love the um, – um, I don't know what you would call it – where the the illustration you have about the, uh, the word Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And, uh, is that on the cover of the book? Mm-hmm. I, I don't have. Yes. That. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's the, it's the sacred name of God, the four letters, which we would transliterate as Y H W H. So Hebrew doesn't have vowels. So we kind of speculate on the A and the E. There's get, no
0: vowels in Hebrew. That's why I got a yeah, Hebrew right. class. I never figured that out. <laughs> I always knew there's something missing, I, but that's it.
1: Yeah. Well, you have the whole oral culture and breathing marks. So you kind of guess at, at, at how it works, but yeah, that le- that name when you put it from top to bottom. I actually had a rabbi teach me this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a rabbi professor here in Nashville taught me this that the, the mystics will talk about the name being placed from top to bottom and how if you trace it, it actually forms the human body, like you were saying, the sacred image of God.
0: Okay, so you 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 mentioned this a long time ago. We're preaching like a you mean a couple other guys. I think we're preaching through Genesis together. Yeah. And, and you shared the story like, oh, you know, you could draw it and it looks like a person. I was like, that's a great idea. Maybe I should do that in my sermon. And so I said, let me get a volunteer. And I said, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to kind of, you know, trace it out on someone. And I'm thinking, oh, this would be great. You know, the, and, and it'll be a person. That I'll go, oh wow, that's that. I get it now. I finally get it. And I asked for a volunteer, and a lady walks on stage. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> no, I, this is going to be far more far more personal than I wanted to be. And I was like, yeah. um. Didn't think through that one. So if you're going to use this, get a person the same gender as you.
1: One time I did this with Otter Creek in one – I think in our first service. So we had probably five or 600 people in there. And it was going well until I looked over at the youth group and I was like, oh, I should have thought ahead. Like they were all sitting together (laughs) laughing like (laughs) – Yeah, the
0: youth group. Yeah, I'll remember – I'll remember that when I come there for uh, July 4th and preach at Otter Creek like we talked about last time on the podcast. Yeah. First, <laughs> <told Yeah. laughs> or am I getting the one after uh, Christmas? Which one was that again? I forget. I
1: think we said that between Christmas and New Year's when okay. i was skiing. So okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay, but- okay. Wait. I, I'm going to come back to this. So, Okay. So what you have in the 20th century, which we're just coming out of, right? You had one group that said, when it comes to anyone who looks different than us, thinks different than us, we should be afraid and suspicious. That's kind of fundamentalist conservative Christianity. Then you had liberal Protestant Christianity that came out of like Union Seminary and Princeton and other places that said, uh, we're really going to explore these faiths, these other traditions. So they would say things like, we're all traveling the same mountain. We're just taking different paths to summit. Yeah. So you have this. Conservative, kind of fearful side, and this liberal kind of we're all the same. And I think there's a third path, which is what you articulated. I'm a Jesus person. I believe everybody's creating the image of God. So I have Christian and Jewish brothers and sisters around the world, and I have Muslim neighbors. It doesn't mean we believe the same thing. We have different ideas about the end of the world and judgment and forgiveness, but. I'm so compelled by Jesus that I think to be a Jesus person is really good news for people who aren't Jesus people. I, I think about that in the neighborhood where I live. Like, I don't, I'm not so much interested in if people know that I'm a preacher or that Cara and I are Christians and we're trying to raise our boys. I want them to see that us being in their neighborhood is really good for them. What about
0: the person who's going to push push back and say, well, shouldn't you be trying to invite them to church? And if they don't know Jesus, how good of a neighbor can you be if you're not trying to say, hey, if you don't sign up for what I'm selling, you're going to burn in hell?
1: So some of my Muslim friends have come to Otter Creek. They came uh, last Easter because I invited them. But I invited them again out of the context of I know their kids. They know me. I've been to the mosque. I've been to the Baha'i temple here. Um, And I'll tell you what, you pay attention a lot more to every song that's sung and every word that is spoken when your Muslim friends are sitting with you on Easter Sunday. What did you
0: notice? What are the things that we would have not thought twice about that you would think about?
1: You cannot explain the Trinity to a Muslim. Why not? Like we think we're like hardcore monotheistic. Like they are like true monotheistic. So when you talk father, son, and spirit to a Muslim – it's just like, you know, it's just not helpful. And so many of our songs are Trinitarian um, that, I mean, our good songs, I should say. So many of our good songs, which typically we <laughs> sing on Easter, right? <laughs> We're like, okay, it's Easter. We got to bring our A-game. Bring Hawaii, the
0: best ones, yeah.
1: <laughs> that I just remember thinking, my friend Nima, who was with us and, and her kids, I just kept thinking, like, how is she, she's Kurdish, um, Muslim from northern Iraq. I just kept thinking, like, I don't know how I'm gonna. So we had some interesting conversations, but her, her biggest thing was that um, as an immigrant, she's looking for power. We talked about this last time on podcast with you, but for her, religion needs to be about power. What, and- do, you
0: mean, what do you mean, power?
1: Like You hear this in the black church all the time, it's the power of Jesus, it's the power of the name, it's empowerment to come out of your oppression and your sadness and your depression and your poverty. It's not just, is it true, it's, does it have power? So what she resonated with, my friend Nima, is that her mosque experiences in Nashville, she felt a lot more like what you would hear some Catholics describe as kind of, you know, tradition, stand up, do this, pray this way. Whereas she was like, you know, I don't know about this Jesus thing, and I don't know about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I do know that I felt a sense of power in this place. That do was th- it. so. That was an interesting conversation.
0: Do you think we would just replace the word power with the spirit?
1: I think, I think some people would. Yeah,
0: hmm. yeah. So she comes to Easter Sunday. Obviously, one of the five pillars of Islam is there's no God but Allah. So mm-hmm. the Trinity kind of kind of is tough for. Her. What about the resurrection? Is that something that uh well received, new to her? obviously she probably knows the story of Christianity, but
1: Right. So you know in the Quran, Jesus isn't crucified. It's someone else. It was like his stunt double. Um so because he wasn't killed, he wasn't raised either. But she did she's she has no problem with the resurrection. She's I mean, she was like I don't know if she believes it. But I do know other Muslims who believe Jesus was raised, but they don't think that. They just think that was an affirmation of his prophethood, not his divinity, mm-hmm. um, which obviously Orthodox Christianity would take issue with that. But she was very open to the whole idea of renewal, restoration, you know, spring comes after the winter, that sort of thing. So that, that was not troubling for her. It was more of father, son and Holy Spirit. Like, how can you say the prophet's the same as the God who made the world?
0: Yeah. Is is there something inside of you that makes you feel like you need to, like, try to correct her thinking?
1: As no, what I try—that's a great question. What I try to do is to make the right corollaries. So a lot of people, when they think about Islam, again, if they think about Islam at all, <laughs> but when they do, they think that it's essentially Jesus versus Muhammad. Like, which one are you going to follow? Oh. Right. Well, Christians say things about Jesus Muslims would never say about Muhammad. Like Jesus is more central to Christianity than Muhammad is to Islam. The central, defining, revelatory moment in the life of Christianity is Jesus of Nazareth. The central, defining, revelatory moment for Islam is the Quran, the Arabic of the Quran. So we are a people of the resurrection, the person, and to their to their respect, respectfully they are people of the book there those are two different things christianity is inherently more kind of mystical mysterious that we would put our faith in this person who's raised from the dead where there is much uh yep. you know much more concrete
0: do you remember that uh pastor down in florida who burnt a bunch of uh copies yeah. of the quran yeah. so as christians our response to that, well, you know, we're offended by that if it was a bunch of Bibles, but not to the magnitude.
1: That's exactly right, Luke. I hadn't even thought about that example. It's not the same. It's like it would be like burning the Bible and images of Jesus.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, and, it's, and
1: even the images doesn't quite get at it, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In some ways, it, do you remember the, the art piece from decades ago? It was um, It was – the crucifixion in a thing of urine, I think it was called Piss Christ, and it created yeah. a huge uproar. That probably is a lot closer to the burning of the...
1: That's exactly right. Hey, I feel like you actually did your
0: homework. I- I'm just riffing right now, to be honest <laughs> with you. I'm just,
1: all just no, riffing that. You're off. exactly right. That's exactly right. So, so you've got to be honest about how Islam and Christianity are different, because they are. And then once you understand why they're different, then you can understand the beauty of what can motivate a Jesus person to have compassion and heart and love for the other, especially as it relates to Muslim.
0: It, it seems like if you don't have a basic knowledge of who your neighbor is and what they believe and what's central to their life, it's hard right. to relate with them.
1: Right. Um, someone recently relate, it wasn't said, this was said to me secondhand, right? So, you know, it came from a good church source. Um, secondhand, Someone said, you know, I don't hear you criticize often, but the I have heard one person. Oh, that's
0: weird because I, <laughs> <laughs> I have.
1: I have heard one person refer to you as a Muslim lover. Of course, I go back to the 60s, you know, and I, in my mind, and I'm thinking, okay, I know what they're saying. But ironically, I take that as a compliment because I think if you're a Jesus person, you do not get the choice of who you love anymore. That's what John three sixteen says. God so loved the whole thing, the whole world, the whole cosmos. Yeah. He didn't. Salvation isn't dependent upon divisions, right? Like it's for everybody. Like God's love is recklessly poured out to anybody. So the irony is that's a compliment to me. It'd be he, like saying he loves homeless people. He lo- I love people. Period.
0: That's kind of a big thing for Jesus. They will know you're, thing, you're, yeah. you're my followers because you love everyone. And loving enemies, which I don't think we need to classify every Muslim person as your enemy, but sometimes right. uh, in the American worldview, Islam is seen as an enemy because there is a character of all Islam being the extremists. In the same way that it would be very terrifying for us as Christians to think that someone thought all Christians are just like the KKK right. because they're our terrorist sect and we don't want to be associated with them. But that's, that's the assumption some have about Islam. But when they call you a Muslim lover, do you think part of that is because maybe they think that you're not, you know, quote unquote, preaching the gospel to them enough?
1: That's a great question. I hadn't considered. Let's just let the moment linger.
0: <laughs> so, then, otherwise, I it think could,
1: it could be like almost like he loves them too much. Like he's not willing to challenge them.
0: It's, and I'm not which saying this is, is who you which, are, right? But I'm going to give you more chance to think while I talk. But yeah. it's like if, if you love your kids so much that you don't discipline them, you're really not helping them grow. And I think someone could look at that and go, well, shouldn't you be converting them? Shouldn't you be doing this X, Y, and Z in such a way that you're not giving them a chance to hear about Jesus? And this is, I think, goes back – and this is my defensive view. I think ultimately what you're trying to do is be a Jesus person to them. Jesus said yeah. "You know, love your neighbor, take, you know, take care of everyone, love ev- everyone – and I don't think the uh the story of the Good Samaritan is about uh, the person being helped needing to uh convert the Samaritan to Judaism
1: right yeah, and I think uh so much, especially in evangelical Christianity, so much is about the end, eschatology and judgment and man, it's a liberating place to just realize that God is going to sort all this out. And how does the kid who was born in nineteen seventy nine and came to Afghanistan get compared in God's mind to me that was born in you know a good Christian family in Detroit, Michigan. Like, I Because I believe so much in the fairness and the justice of God, I'm fine believing in the judgment of God. And when I talk to my Muslim friends, I never back down from how central I think Jesus is and how I think he's the way and offers the most life possible. But I'm doing the same thing for people in church because not everybody in church believes in the kingdom of God. They believe in church. So that's a dangerous place to be because then it sounds like I'm the dispenser of all things, you know, true. But I think this is a unique moment in time for Christians to try and see if Jesus knew what he was talking about.
0: Yeah.
1: like good. to really put it into action and be like, does this actually work? Hmm. I think it, I think it does.
0: Yeah. That's good. Hey, uh, your book, uh, how not to kill a Muslim. It's out. People are going to enjoy it. I encourage you to get a copy of it. And uh, Josh, Thanks for your time again. It's always fun. Thank you, you, Luke. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.